Salam. This is In Conversation from Network Reorient in association with the Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In this episode, Uzma Jamil is in conversation with Stephen Shihai on epistemology, critical race theory and critical Muslim studies. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this podcast of Reorient. Um, my name is Uzma Jamil, and I'm here today with Professor, professor Stephen Chihai, the Sultan Qaboos Professor of Middle, Middle East Studies and Professor of Arab Studies at the College of William and Mary in the States. Uh, professor Chihai <clears throat> is also the founding faculty director of the Decolonizing Humanities Project uh, at William and Mary. So welcome, and thank you for being with here, uh, being with us here today, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So I want to begin um, maybe just by asking you to tell us a little bit about what your work is about. Um, what are some intellectual themes and threads that you find productive and interesting in your work? Oh, wow. Thanks for asking. I, I have a very noisy chair here, so forgive me, you'll hear a lot of creaking probably. Um, well, I think my work is pretty diverse over the past 20 years. Um, you know, it, Sort of intellectual heritage of the Arab world, and then sort of, and, and also Islamophobia, photography, visual studies, and um, uh, with a, a very um, compelling uh, part of it being about Palestine, especially most recently. So, within that sort of array, I think of topics. One thing that sort of cuts across it is the idea of um, the epistemology of modernity, or I think what people would be calling more the epistemology of coloniality and how it sort of, uh, for me, how it was constructed um, indigenously as much as uh, imposed, um, how, um, you know, Muslim and Arab subjects are conscripted to sort of, you know, swallow the red pill and sort of be believers and the coloniality and modernity as sort of natural things and um, sort of liberalism. Um, and so I'm just really kind of fascinated about that, about the ways in which we, as, as uh, brown people, as Arabs, as Middle Easterners, um, come to sort of live in a world uh, that is dominated by particular forms of um, thought that are um, uh, sort of components of and determined by sort of uh, uh, capitalism, racial capitalism, and modernity. So that's kind of the big, big, big piece of sort of what unites a very sort of diverse um, move. Okay, so there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we could go in a lot of different directions with that. Um, I guess maybe let me ask you sort of a way of trying to narrow that down a bit. Uh, what kind of threads or overlaps do you see between your work and critical Muslim studies? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's really a great question because I think, you know, what when we think about critical race studies, uh, uh, critical race studies and critical Muslim studies, I think what is um, really interesting about them is that they they depart from previous methodologies about rethinking the intersectionality between a number of different ideological and uh, formations, uh, and so. Um, you know, the issue that folks are, you know, what, 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 what appeals to me about critical race studies and critical Muslim studies is that is how they really are trying to get their mind around the way race, racial capitalism, gender, colonialism, all sort of 
uh, meet in different scales and ratios. So when we think about, for example, Islamophobia, um, we can, rather than us understanding this just in terms of, say, East versus, uh, East versus West, or in terms of uh, Saeed's work, which is invaluable, uh, it allows us to also to understand like what do we have when we have Orientalism that has also over uh, overlaps or comes also from um, the formation of of race at the same time, right? Um, and then of course how Islamophobia then plays into uh, later um, empires, right? Um, and and then of course how. Um, that different forms of, of, of Islamophobia, for example, um, serve rep social reproduction, right? Certain, like, what does is, what is Islamophobia help us think or help folks do, right? I mean, it's, it's very easy to say just allows folk, you know, uh, the United States to justify the invasion of Iraq or Afghanistan or Muslim lands or, our, uh, or the Arab world. But sort of what else is it playing upon, right? Um, so I think critical race theory and critical Muslim studies t helps us think about that, right? Rather than us, ju uh, us just thinking about East versus West, the East is a construct, a subject of knowledge that, that you know, colonialism created. Yeah, this is all true, but it allows us to think about the ways in which um, that also, it also coincides with the rise of racial capitalism, right? For example, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that's that's specific enough, but I think that's that's one of the things that really make you know uh, critical race theory and critical Muslim studies sort of pertinent in my work. Okay, so I want to um, so your your answer sort of makes me think of two things. Um, one is I would I would argue that it bring critical Muslim studies brings together the idea of Muslim as a racialized subject, right. which then places this subject within particular histories and right. genealogies of, of race, racial formation and ideological formation like you're talking about. And I think the other thing that it does, which I'm not sure that critical race theory does in as much um, sort of emphasis, is thinking about decoloniality and bringing that piece in to it as well. So mm. how do we think then about um, this kind of Muslim as a racialized subject uh, within certain kinds of histories, and how do we connect that with uh, coloniality and then thinking about decoloniality? Right. Wow. Now, now, now you're giving me the big one. So that's uh, that's really complex because, you know, I think when we think about the issues, if we think about Islamophobia, for example, through critical race theory and through critical Muslim studies, what it forces us also to do is to understand Islamophobia itself as really a variegated sort of phenomenon of um, that serves particular sort of... Um, uh, political context, right? So um, my book, for example, concentrated and was very, very, very concerned with only concentrating in what Islamophobia looks like in the in the United States, right? Because it, because in the United States, it falls within a very specific tradition of racialization. So there's no way to really talk about Muslims in the United States without talking about also Black Americans, right? Because we live in a racialized society that is defined within the, the sort of a racial spectrum that at one very end is the abjection, uh, uh, the abject uh, black body, right, and the dehumanized black body, and on the other hand is the the, the, the ideal whiteness and ideal of the white body, um, and of course uh, the Muslim in the United States 
falls in between that in, in, within that spectrum. Uh, and this might actually be a bit different about how it functions, for example, in in Holland, right, or in uh, UK that has a very weird and uh, unfortunate <laughs> and brutal colonial history within the Arab world. Um, so I think this is um, that's that's one thing I think for us to to, to try to acknowledge. Um, that brings us to the second point, the issue of decoloniality. And so decoloniality obviously is not just a magic, um, you know, a, a magic gesture that we can sort of all just stop thinking the way we do now. We can unracialize and unthink and unlearn what we've learned and then just uh, go back to something else. It really depends about context, right? It depends about us locating our own particular um, positionality and our historical positions within those specific racial histories. So, for example, as for me, for example, as an Arab American Christian who finds himself racialized along uh, a spectrum uh, uh, within blackness, but also in relation to Arab Muslim identities within the United States helps to triangulate and to make us think about, okay, how are we going to decolonialize? How, what, are the, what are the power structures that we're pinging off of? What are, the, what are the privileges that we share and that we have to sort of destroy or reject? Um, so I think, it, I don't know if, again, this is all too abstract, but I think it's really, really super decoloniality makes us really think about how to unwind within the particular context in which we uh, are able to identify through critical race theory and critical Muslim studies. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, so I think, I think I agree with you. I think the bigger question for me, or perhaps a tension that arises, is thinking about this in national terms. So within the national history, so, you know, U.S. history is distinct, as you said, from British history, for example. Um, but then also trying to think about this sort of across uh, across nations, uh, mm. or even perhaps across empires, if, if right. we're talking about a uh, different right. time period. And so how do we, so what I see here is, two ten, is a tension, and I think maybe, I don't know, I don't know if necessarily like we need to resolve the tension, but right. simply to say that thinking about these histories within a national context and we tracing it in a particular way, um, how do we then have a conversation with uh, you know, somebody who's located within a different history right. and different context beyond simply acknowledging that there is a different national history right. and a genealogy that's at play. Right, right. Well, I think this is actually what's really interesting. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately about what the more current thinking within critical race studies and critical Muslim studies has encouraged us to do is to think about difference, but rather than follow the model of liberalism, which is a model of liberalism is to look for sameness mm -hmm. and over and sort of like, you know, we're all, we're all, we're all one. It's okay. And like, let's kumbaya, let's just hold hands and kind of like displace the difference. Right. It actually understand difference and let difference stand next to each other one by one. And that is what true solidarity is, mm -hmm. is where we stand together in difference, but also work towards um, the, the remediation of 
the violence that systems impose on us. So it's in, for example, Islamophobia in the United States, I would say, and this is, so this is me being slightly pedantic and crude, but Islamophobia in the United States over the past, obviously 20 years or 25, or maybe even 30 years has been increasingly violent, increasingly pernicious and increasingly visible. I would say before that Islamophobia, it's as the formation uh, that it is now, didn't exist in the way it did. It was it, it expressed itself in terms of anti-Arab uh, um, um, hate, and that has to do a lot with uh, Arab socialism, Arab revolutionary movements, and Arab liberation movements, and of course Palestine. Um, so, how can we look at, for example, the violence in which Muslim Americans have to live every day? Um, but also understand it in relation to the violence that black Americans have to live every day. Um, and we don't have to say, oh, yeah, I'm black like you because you're not right. Mm -hmm. um, you're Pakistani or well, you may be, uh, if you're, you know, maybe a, a, a black African Muslim. Uh, but, you know, in many ways, you don't have to say there's that we, we both are victims of white supremacy, which we are, but there are different degrees in which we uh, suffer or are victimized uh, by uh, uh, or partake in white supremacy. So I think for me, it's a matter of thinking about those differences, not as things, as places to separate, but to also acknowledge those differences as really, really essential and as catalysts for solidarity. You see what I'm saying? Right, right. So I think, a couple, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Um, one, I think your idea of difference and, and sameness. So I agree with you on sort of the liberalism that we're all sort of happily the same and, and the kumbaya, that critique. Um, <clears throat> and I think when you're saying difference, I would, I would understand that as power and, and differentials of power in particular, because I think what liberalism is very good at is, is erasing power right. and sort of you know, allowing all of us to be sort of happily the same. Right. Um, so I think that in terms of difference. Now, the other thing I was just thinking of as you were speaking is sort of difference um, across across uh, national contexts. Right. And and thinking about that actually is sort of logics, um, racialized logics, right. colonial logics, which intersect and as you say, sort of create subject positions that are distinct. So they're not all collapsed together. You know, all brown people, black people are not the same. Right. They do not experience violence in the same way, even if they all do experience violence. So I think we can make that distinction between right. being um, subject to violence and, and violence, but then not necessarily having the same subject position because, because there are distinctive histories that are attached to different communities. Right. Um, so I think, which then I like, so I agree with you on that. If we sort of follow down that in that train of thought, then that this concept of solidarity across uh, across communities and across groups then kind of has to take that into account as well in order for it to be effective. And, and all of this is sort of within a larger critique of liberalism, right? Exactly. So I think that this actually creates a really nice segue uh, into <laughs> what I wanted to talk about next. So one of the things I've been thinking about and, and talking about with various um, friends and colleagues is 
sort of what's happening politically right now um, in, in not just in, in North America, but in sort of its sort of chain reaction across other countries. And, and so how do we think about, so for me, the question is, how do we think about this current political moment right. um, as not simply a single event or a series of um, single events, but as part of a history? Right. And so what does this present make visible to us about the past? Because I'm, I'm sort of very wary of, of um, analyses that tend to be focused on explaining, you know, what happened just now. Right. And as completely sort of outside of time and outside of history and outside of politics in a, in a broader sense. Right. right. So what are your thoughts uh, on that? Yeah, I mean, that's great. I mean, because there's a lot of issues that, that, that are sort of are kind of exploding right now. And that is one is the, the you know, the, the bold-facedness of what white supremacy uh, actually looks like, uh, what whiteness actually looks like, what, what racial capitalism looks like, um, and how, um, you know, um, uh, blackness has been uh, globalized within a globalized set of uh, formation. This is what Silva uh, in some regard about, right? Um, so I think it's funny because, you know, the, the current moment, I think there's a lot there to, to say. And, and one of the things I would say is, you know, BIPOC folk um, always live in, in, and I hate this metaphor, but I'm going to use it because I don't like gender metaphors, but they always live in pregnant moments, right? Their whole life is a pregnant moment. It's one consistent moment of tension that is always on the verge of explosion because that they live the tensions. They are the right. They are the border uh, crossing. They are the border town. That's where they live, right? And that's why, of course, you know, they have the you know the consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the con that you know, bipoc bipoc folk live and understand um, the contradictions of racial capitalism and white supremacy the most. Right, and so it's always it's always on the verge of potential explosion, right? Because, you know, I don't know why George Floyd tipped it over. I mean, why wasn't it um, Rodney King, right? Mm -hmm. When we were all on the streets again, right? Mm -hmm. Why didn't Rodney King thirty years ago um, result in a mass national uprising? That would have been spun into a global uprising. You know what I mean? So I don't know, like, what is it about this moment in, in particular? I do think, though, that one suspect thing I do have is that the white supremacy has become so visible. And I do believe that our biggest fear, uh, 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 danger that the United States faces is actually the mobilization of a very pernicious, very real um, fascist rebellion. Um, and I think that the um, backlash, let's say, of having a black president um, has really um, uh, emboldened white nationalists. Um, and I think so there, in, in many ways, the air is, is full of electricity already. Um, so I think this allows this sort of spark that we get through this uh, video of George Floyd being murdered 
gratuitously and blatantly murdered um, by cops, which again is nothing new, um, is it, it, it was the sort of spark that hit this sort of electricity already in the air. Um, and I think that just again, I think what I think the thing is about capitalism in general, it doesn't hide its it doesn't hide its uh, its contradiction. Its contradictions are always there. Right, white supremacy is always there. Racial capitalism is always there. We always live it. We that we. It's just a matter of peeking in and out of our this consciousness to to be able to understand those contradictions and act on them. I think, and to some degree, that's the that's the sort of vagaries of history right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that kind of gets to the point. Yeah, I think I would. I I agree with you, and I think I would say actually that. You're right that it's always been there, this history. I think some people had the luxury of not seeing it. Right. Um, and not living it, right? And I think what's changed in this moment is that a lot of people who previously were in that in that group are like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, is this, you know, so like, yep. what's, what's going on here? And I think a lot of people are color are sort of like, dude, you just saw this now? Like, Right. And but see, that's where I think like the only problem with that analysis, I think it lets, you know, Whitey off. The top, right. It's like you have the luxury of not seeing. Well, what are you freaking what are you producing and not seeing it? I think I mean, people have been saying this for ages. Right. I mean, Black Lives Matter was just only a couple of years ago. Right. I mean, these are that's the thing. I don't you know, you walk down the street in Richmond and you have a, 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 a an avenue, it's called the Avenue of Monuments, and they're all colonial monuments. I mean, a Confederate monuments, right? You, I live in a town, and I would like to acknowledge that I live in Pamunkey uh, stolen territory. I live in a town which is ground zero of the invasion of, uh, of, of uh, the British uh, uh, colonization of North America. No, I mean my my neighborhood is 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 named after you know Powhatan, you know uh, Pocahontas's father, right? Quote unquote Pocahontas, right? I mean, it's all here. I it's not. I don't think they have a luxury of seeing. I think their 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 willingness not to see reproduces and is essential in reproducing the system. And it's when black people rose up and broke that comfort level. The comfort level of you being able to reproduce this system—it's when black people, when the when the when the fear in you, inside of you of a black revolt busted through—is when that quote unquote luxury of not seeing disappears, and that's when liberals are happy to jump on board. Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, reform, right? Because they see that their luxury, their comfort level might actually lead to a complete destruction of the racial capitalist society in which they live, right? And the privileges in which they benefit. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, so that the idea of like luxury of not seeing, like, yes, I get it. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, for me, it's the luxury. You don't have the luxury of reproducing that blindness, right? Right. So- and I don't, yeah, yeah, and take away the agency of black people who started this revolution, right? The popular uprising right now, it's a multiracial uprising, but it is black people who started it. And white people got fear in their eyes. So they said, we better freaking, you know, get on board with this. So I, hmm, okay, so I agree with you. And I think I want to push you a bit further, but because I think BLM has been around 
for right. a long time. Right. And they've been calling for this for a long time. So the question is not so much that Black people haven't been active and people of color haven't been active um, right. in critiquing white supremacy and, and you know, all of its structures and its implications and logics and things. But I think there is something, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, there's something about this political moment that removes this, that sort of changes the equation a little bit somehow. And what we're seeing is the impact of that. And so we can, we can analyze the, the why and the how, but we are seeing the what right. um, in, in that sense, right? So I don't think, so I, I see what you're saying, but I don't think that it's just all of a sudden something happened and they got afraid. However, I agree with you in terms of the sense that centering whiteness, even in a moment that is actually, should be about deconstructing whiteness is, is a thing. Like we, we sort of need to be uh, wary of and conscious of. And I think if we're thinking in a bigger sense, um, not just around one issue, but thinking about connections to decoloniality in a, in a larger way, it is about deconstructing the structures and not simply critiquing them, right? Right. right. So I think just to, I think, uh, you know, to move away from maybe my pedantic statement, which I still stand by. <laughs> right, so you're going to uh, hang in there with your pedanticness, right? I've seen the, seen, seen the fear in your eyes. Maybe, maybe to be more diplomatic, mm. what I think is, is that liberal white society was confronted by their, by their complicity in the reproduction of a system of racial capitalism. And that when they, when black folks rose in the street and refused to accept the contradiction any longer. And this is when the movement sort of gives an opening to have um, to remediate, as you say, a, a, a systemic issues, right? Now, the question for us is, of course, is what is that remediation going to look like? And that's the tensions that we see, right? Um, and I do think there's, I don't ever make generational arguments. I'm really uncomfortable with them because I don't mean generational in this content, in this way, I don't mean generational necessarily in, in terms of age. I just kind of mean generation in terms of maybe time period. But I do think we are at a point where there's a large swath of people, many of them are younger, who have been born into a neoliberal system, who have been born into unvarnished US empire, who have been born into a post, uh, let's say Rodney King world, a post a world where BLM was maybe uh, you know, several years ago, and they were, you know, 15 or 10 or whatever, or 20 when it happened. So I do think that the, there are cracks in this, the contradictions in our system are becoming so um, pronounced that it is allowing folks to pour into them and mobilize to really think about ways to truly uh, address systemic issues. But the problem is, of course, in the end, this is what I mean by the sort of fear in their eyes, liberals are always there to reform the system rather than dismantle. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, so I think what comes to mind, so what you're saying about, you're saying about a generational um, opening 
you know, in, in terms of thinking about this. I was just thinking the other day, actually, that the pandemic as a political context right. is also an opening. Yeah, um, and that it allows the, it facilitates, I think, a questioning of the hegemonic order in, in the different ways that it's constituted socially, economically, politically, etc. And I think that is not unconnected to a questioning sort of of the hegemonic order in this way, or the crack sort of, you know, it kind of pushes the crack a bit further. So what you're saying, you know, so it, so I agree with you in the sense that there's sort of a long-term view of this that we need to be thinking about. But I also think that the pandemic as a particular kind of political moment um, and a questioning of the hegemonic order pushes that crack a bit further. And huh. because we don't yet know how long this is going to last, right. perhaps it'll be easier to make an analysis when we have an endpoint. Right. Uh, at the moment, we're all living through it, even as we're thinking about it and trying to, you know, analyze it at the, in, in light of the things that we already think about. Right. I think it's it, it's funny to think about um, the pandemic as the portal, right? As Andrew Roy said, mm -hmm. to think about it as a moment to walk through, or I think he also says that it's basically a sort of renting of a fabric in which we can see the contradictions of the system. Um, but I also can't help personally to think about the pandemic is really only the effect of the condition in which we live and have been living for a number of years, mm -hmm. but which have come to head with Trump. And that is, number one, that COVID-19 is a product of the neoliberal global era. It is a product of neoliberal global economics where, you know, people and stuff travel far before, you know, communities, right? So what happens is you have this circulation. It's circulated like a commodity, right? Um, so that's number one. And on the other hand, too, I see it as being dealt with through this sort of ethno-nationalist um, prism in the United States that both benefits from neoliberalism but also disavows it. And that's where Trump's nationalism, uh, sort of ultra-nationalism, ethno-nationalism comes in. And it also accentuates, or not accentuates, but like gives an opportunity for racism to be uh, to be instrumentalized. And so what I don't think people enough people are talking about, I think they mention it as a throwaway, but the anti-Asian racism that's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it, it is anti-Asian racism has been um, at the bottom, at the very ground floor of how uh, folks are addressing this this um, this pandemic in the United States. And I, my, my point being is that um, I mean, you, you said it said it opens up an opportunity, but it also opens up precisely what is already there. And I think that's kind of, um, I mean, the opportunity for us in many ways is that it exposes all the contradictions that, that we already know that they're there. So it clarifies the target for us, right? It clarifies the target because it shows that number one, you do not live in a democratic state that actually gives a shit about you, right? They will, they will let you rot, they will let you die. And the only reason that they're not is because people are screaming um, 
The only reason not is because you need consumers to go into your restaurant and buy your stuff. You need workers to go and work in the factory that you want to build for low wage labor in this country. So, you know, I think it, uh, and it exposes the racism that you are using to explain how this, how this, how this, uh, 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 virus got here. So I think for me, it clarifies, it's more of a, less of a renting than more of a sort of a, a you know, a, a clarifying process. I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier in terms of the past, the present making visible right. the past. So, or rather present making visible what is already there, but which some people see right. and other people don't. So, right. and, and I think you're right in the sense that um, the, the different bodies, you know, are affected differently by the pandemic. Um, right. And if we think about the parallel uh, to what I was saying earlier about violence, and how violence affects different communities. So violence against black people is a different, has a different impact than violence against um, brown people. So I, I agree with you in the sense that um, anti-Asian racism also here in Canada is, uh, you know, has really picked up and it's a thing and people have spoken out against it as sort of, you know, um, problematic obviously in, in a lot of different ways. But the anti-Asian racism now is actually sort of an echo of anti-Asian racism earlier from the SARS uh, thing, which happened in Toronto, uh, you know, where there's sort of a big outbreak in Toronto, the H1N1 thing. So these ideas, I think, in terms of how different kinds of bodies are viewed as um, dangerous and threatening in different ways, and then therefore justify the use of violence against right. them uh, by the state, and again, in different ways, which I think the pandemic, you know, the violence against those bodies in some sense is the ability to for the state to um, to allow some to live and to let others die. So to paraphrase uh, Foucault's biopolitics. Right. But right. it's different, obviously, in terms of police violence against black right. people. And here in Canada, again, police violence against indigenous people, um, which is, you know, which is sort of uh, an important issue as well. I am actually aware of the time here. I think we've we've had a very wide ranging conversation about any number of things. Um, so I want to maybe close up with one last question for you in terms of so how do we think about the future? Like we've talked about the present, we've talked about the past and its connections to the past. But how does it help us think about the future in a different way? You know, keeping in mind that we're all living through this, that there isn't we haven't arrived at an end point and perhaps we will not you know, anytime soon. Right. So I just want to, I mean, I'm going to answer that partially by also kind of uh, addressing also what we, we have just sort of kicking around. And I think this is really important because we're talking at the level of abstraction and analysis in many ways, theory, and sort of, uh, you know, how we're analyzing the moment. But we also have to remember something else. You said the visible, the current moment allows visible of the history and also the current context. But I think something else is important, and I th say this as someone who's been involved in, in, in activism in Palestine and also in, in the Arab world. When she, stuff blows up in the Arab world, she says, oh my God, where did this Arab Spring come from? And I, th I think all, what we are seeing also here, and this actually speaks to how we move forward, is that there have been brothers and sisters and siblings on the ground whether they're indigenous people, whether they're black folk, whether you know people of color, whether they're you know uh, uh, progressive Muslim uh, uh, Americans, in, in, for example, in this country, um, who have been doing the hard work on the ground, who have been organizing, who have been thinking through things, who have been doing reading groups, right? Who have been developing an analytical framework, and now they're also in in, in reaching out 
the mobilizing communities, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that the future looks can look like the present. For me, the question is, is how do we sustain this present moment into the future? And the way we do that is we continually reach into our community, keep talking to them, keep mobilizing them, and have them and, and have us also be here to speak through, uh, have them speak through us, for us to listen to them. And I think that is the way we're going to move forward, right? We have to have mass mobilization. And there are people already on the ground. But you can also see how mass mobilization happens so quickly with demonstrations where people have never been in the street and they're in the street and they're just getting turned on. And they're building on the work that has already been done and people that have been doing over the past couple of years, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Indigenous folk out, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I was going to say out and say, you know, the West, but even, you know, here also as well in the East, I think it's super important for us to understand the future is built on the work that people are already doing and for us to how to keep that um, plugged in to mass mobilization. Absolutely. Um, so on that note, uh, I want to thank you for making the time uh, to have this you. conversation and to wish you well in these pandemic times. You too. Stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.